Welcome to EU The Jury. I'm Robin Lustig, and with me are 10 men and women who hope to be able to make up their minds about how to vote in the EU referendum on June the 23rd. They're going to hear from experts, they're going to question them closely, and then they're going to discuss among themselves what they've heard. And you'll be able to eavesdrop on their deliberations. They introduced themselves at the start of our discussion about the economy. So if you haven't listened to that one yet, perhaps it would be a good idea to do so before you listen to this. I should point out that our jurors are not meant to be scientifically representative sample of the UK electorate, although we have chosen them more or less at random. Now, this discussion is about the laws and regulations that come from the EU, and in particular, the impact that they have on British businesses. How will they be affected by the decision that we make on June the 23rd? We're going to start with a speaker who wants to focus on environmental legislation. She's Ellen Baker of Client Earth, which is a group of environmental lawyers. Ellen Baker. Hi, Robin. Uh, thanks for the introduction. So I'd like to talk to you a bit today about what my organisation focuses on, which is environmental legislation across the EU, and talk a bit about what the EU does for us uh, in environmental law context. And now the most important point I want to make is that these impacts are things that we won't see immediately. Environmental law works away quietly in the background and it changes the landscape, both in a metaphorical sense and in a physical sense in the UK. And we don't notice what the EU law is doing for us. So, first of all, rough outline of EU law. It gives a legal framework for member states to live up to. So we've got directives and regulations, and basically every EU law will apply to every EU member state, but some of, some of them it's up to a member state to interpret and interpret the meaning and put that into their national law to make sure that they live up to what the EU standards are. EU law sits between national law and it sits between broader international treaties, um, which are much softer and a bit more distant. So EU law is a good middle point. Uh, it tells us that we need to preserve, protect, and improve the quality of environment, and that's one of the key reasons it exists. So the laws that keep our environment safe currently are largely from the EU. Um, can I give some examples? So we've got fisheries law, that's um, predominantly EU-led. Um, laws that protect our natural environment, um, flora, fauna. Um, we've got uh, human health laws, so chemicals legislation, uh, laws that keep our water quality good, our air quality good, and energy efficiency, renewable energy. All these kinds of laws filter down from EU and are put, implemented by <coughs> member states, obviously including the UK. So um, let's talk about one of these laws in a bit more detail, birds and habitats directives. They were implemented in the 70s and the 90s, respectively. And all that we see that's green and pleasant in the UK, um, a lot of this, you may not realise it, is governed by a coherent network of protected areas. And that stretches all across Europe because wildlife doesn't stay still. Birds certainly don't stay still. And we need to be able to protect these and know that wherever birds, for example, wander in the EU, they're going to be safe wherever they go. So there are about 275 special protected areas in the UK um, that covers about 28,000 kilometres squared. And it may be that you've never heard of Natura 2000 before, but that's one of the key invisible, wonderful functions that EU law does. 
So um, next up, let's think about what would happen if the EU, if the, sorry, if the UK was to leave the EU. Main point is that we really don't know. Thus, we don't know what the legislation would do. So it could be that certain of our environmental laws stay in place, some fall away. A lot of our nature laws, particularly, as I've just mentioned with Interior 2000, a lot of those would fall away much quicker. A lot of EU laws uh, might stay in place technically, but we don't have the enforcement of the EU as a governing body if we have left. So while we'd keep those laws in our national law, the EU wouldn't be there to say, to tap us on the shoulder and tell us to pick our feet up if we're not actually doing what we should be. So let's look at the UK's track record. Can we imagine what it would be like if we left? What would we do with environmental laws? I'm not suggesting that the UK is champing at the bit to throw all of our environmental law out the window. We do know that development uh, is on the up. There's a strong impetus to get more infrastructure and more development. And so, for example, if we don't have those laws that are protecting our natural landscapes, and there is this period of uncertainty and the laws are open to interpretation, perhaps watering down, maybe it would be that roads start to eat up the countryside, that these species aren't protected. It does leave us wide open to weaker laws or perhaps new laws that aren't quite so good. Um, UK, so as well as development, we can look at how the UK is implementing and complying with uh, EU level laws right now. Um, obvious one, particularly for my organisation, is air quality. Um, air quality today um, in London is on the upper side of moderate. So what does that mean? Not very clear, but in Camden, it's officially classed as unhealthy. Air quality all over this country is above and beyond legal limits set down by the EU um, because we are, have not implemented these laws well enough. Ellen, thanks for that. Um, just to pick you up on one thing that you said, you implied that your fear is that if the UK were to leave the EU, it would start backsliding on some of the environmental rules and regulations, which at the moment it has to apply because it's a member of the EU. Another way of putting that would be to say that if the UK left the EU, it could do what it felt was right, not what Brussels insisted was right. Yes, that is just the point. Um, the UK, I think there's an argument um, raised by certain, like some people, that people, that national laws, that a, na a country should make its own national laws because they're aware, very aware of the context. However, we don't live in an isolated country. We have dealings with the EU, we'll still have dealings with EU countries and the rest of the world. And these laws, for example, air quality pollution, air quality doesn't stay still. Um, fish don't stay still. We still need to be able to have an input into, for example, fisheries law that will affect us, air quality law that will affect us. We can't simply apply our own national laws as we feel appropriate and then leave it to the rest of the EU to make decisions without us that we have absolutely no say in. I'm going to push you one step further. That sounds to me almost as if you're saying that you can't trust British governments to do what needs to be done? I would uh, 
It's quite a strong statement, Robin. Um, but I think what we can do is look at the track record. We can look at what Britain has done on environmental law before, currently even where it's lapsing. DEFRA, for example, I think there's a bathing, uh, bathing water quality law um, that DEFRA just wasn't living up to. And it just, I think, stopped measuring it just to kind of get around that. Um, there's the air quality, of course. Um, air quality in certain areas of the country is up to three, or, like, three times the legal limit. And that's been the case for many years. Um, the round of plans that the government came up with to counter that were still not good enough and still weren't going to comply with the EU law within the allotted time frame. So I think we can see from concrete evidence that there is a reason to believe perhaps the UK needs input from the EU. However, the UK has its own Climate Change Act, um, which is exemplary. And for us to be in conversation with the rest of Europe, the other, um, the other states of Europe, it gives us much more clout to be able to influence global conversations on, cli on climate. For example, if we'd taken part in COP21 in December as an independent entity, we wouldn't have had nearly as much influence as we did on the global agreement on climate. Our Climate Change Act is, it does serve as a template almost for other countries. It's admired. It's one of our better environmental laws. But even that, there is, there's a, some newspaper articles I can point you towards um, on the emissions trading system. There are ways that it could be made better. It shouldn't be that we're shunting our emissions around. Yes, Sharma. Um, just talking specifically, I mean, around climate change, obviously, all of that has really come to the fore since we joined uh, the EEC in 73 and uh, now the EU. So I'm not sure what you're measuring our uh, lust or, or our enthusiasm for uh, invoking good practice against. Uh, but I noticed you said that actually the EU is the middle ground between us and the international treaties which keep us on track. And you've just said that we have an exemplary uh, uh, policy and law ourselves, which is copied elsewhere. So I just wonder if you're doing a bit of scaremongering, actually. Environment covers so many different angles. So it's not just climate. Clearly, on climate, we've got a good law, and we've got good input, and we're committed on that. Perhaps other, other factors, the environment, air quality, bathing water, perhaps um, nature, where our commitment is perhaps more questionable. But the th important thing to remember is that we don't know that. It's been since the 70s that we haven't seen what the UK would do were it to be left independently. I think you raise a very good point that we do, we're enthusiastic on climate and we've made you know, really good input into international conversations about that. But I think it's important to remember as well that there are certain instances where our environmental commitment is lacking but of course, what you regard as environmentally beneficial, a lot of British businesses regard as commercially harmful. The same regulations, the same laws. I think regulations are, I think it's important for the competitive framework to have regulations. And I think there's a lot of conversations about what people like to talk about as red tape. And I think that you shouldn't necessarily see red tape as a barrier between profit and not profit, basically. I think it's important to do good business within the parameters of what's not environmentally harmful, and I think that is possible.
Anyone else? Yes, Denise. Um, do you have any situations where European environmental law and regulation has been detrimental to uh, this country in any way? Detrimental in any way. In any way. I, I think fishermen um, previously have raised the argument that industry debate around fishing and fisheries that's definitely been a contentious topic previously um, the common fisheries policy um, is the key piece of fisheries law from the eu um, and i think prior to its reform in 2014 uh, that raised some questions with british fishermen we've got we're really ad in an advantageous situation we've got um, real massive biodiversity in terms of our fish um, but and other countries, I think, are keen to, to get in on that, as it were. Um, but I think the reformed common fisheries policy, um, it means that we have a say in what our quotas are, how those decisions are made. And we can discuss with other countries, again, it's a democratic process. We've got input. We make decisions with all the member states and we get a lot of, uh, lots of say in what the rules that govern us. So it's not that we are, these rules are imposed upon us. We have a say in making rules that work across the EU and make sure industry works too. But your bottom line is that the EU is good for the UK environment. It is. I think the EU is a key part of keeping us accountable in many ways. Well, let's leave it there then. Alan Baker, thank you very much thank indeed. Thank you very much, Robin. So now let's hear a different perspective from Rory Broomfield, director of the Better Off Out campaign. Rory. I'm going to say something that may shock you. When looking at the most prosperous, democratic, competitive and free nations around the world, they are small, not big. You see non-EU nations at the top of the lists, not EU nations. Why is that? It is because they are able, these smaller nations, to make their own laws, to suit their own economics and their own wants. They are able to compete in the world economy, attracting investment, capital, people, goods and services, because they have specialisms that they've carved out and being able to concentrate on, rather than being legislated against. This is exactly the case with the UK. The UK is world leaders in banking and finance. It is an island nation with inventors and innovators galore. Yet the EU is hurting, not helping us to make the most of our talents. How is the EU hurting us, the UK? The EU is dominated by Eurozone countries. From Germany to Greece, they make up nearly 70% of all EU member states and, and as such make regulations suitable for their needs, not ours. I want to highlight three examples, very different examples of how the EU has affected the United Kingdom and will continue to affect it if we remain in. Firstly, the common fisheries policy. The UK has 80% of the EU's fish stock, but our quota 
is just 12%. That has led to dramatic decreases in employment within the fishing industry. Over 100,000 people have lost their jobs since we've become members of the EEC and the EU as a direct result of this policy. And the quota system has not helped sustainability and the environment either. Moving on, energy directives, huge range of energy directives applied within the EU and the single market. But I just thought I'd draw out one that has affected and has been in the news over the past couple of years. And it's called the delightfully sounding, or hit, I think, quite Orwellian sounding, Eco-Design for Energy Using Products and Energy Labeling Directives. Tips of the, trips of the tongue. And as a result, this directive ha limited the wattage of vacuum cleaners and the uh, power used behind microwaves, toasters, and other electrical goods. It pulled a number of products off the shelf, meaning that certain uh, companies were needing to redesign and indeed sometimes pull designs that they'd put to the market and has actually led to entrepreneurs like Sir James Dyson saying that they back leaving the EU because this directive in his eyes hurts entrepreneurs, innovators, people who are able to and would be willing to create new designs, putting more costs on them rather than the big companies. And indeed, as a result, hurting possibly the 99% of all private businesses in the UK, which are SMEs. I'm not saying this directive in particular, but the EU in general with these directives frame for large companies that are multinational, that can trade across the EU. But when it comes to the British economy, where we have an overwhelming amount of companies that are small, medium-sized enterprises, innovators, it puts the bulk of the cost on the small guys. Roy Broomfield, thank you for that. Uh, just a quick question from me before I go to our jury. Isn't it a fact that any trading nation which wishes to sell its products to other nations has to arrive at an agreement about what's usually called a level playing field, basic standards, environmental standards, what are known as regulations, a vast majority, many people say, of the regulations that have been, quote, imposed, unquote, from Brussels, would have had to have been imposed anyway. Well, I would disagree with that, and the common fisheries policy is a prime example, uh, the, and as is with this energy directive. Um, but I would say here that every nation, indeed every company, who sells their goods or services into another environment, regulatory environment, has to comply with that regulatory environment. Uh, the fact is, however, 
According to Business for Britain, 5% of companies in the UK actually export and import to the European Union. You mentioned just 13% of our GDP is trade with the European Union. And so we have a situation where 5% of all companies export and import from the European Union. And yet business regulation is made for 100% of the UK economy. Let's go to the jury. Uh, yes, Chris. Uh, yeah, so you mentioned the, basically what you're saying is there's too much regulation, right? Um, when, pe when people talk about regulation, they always get a little bit nervous because regulate, lack of regulation was kind of one of the reasons that the UK suffered in terms of the banking crisis, right? So in my view, regulation is kind of a good thing. And also, your, the rules and regulations you mentioned tend to typically revolve around what's good for business. Now... At the moment, we, we have a workers' rights, which we get from Europe, around parental leave, maternity leave, information consultation with employees, uh, working time directives, all these protect us. I'm not sure leaving would necessarily, if we left the current Tory government, which are already attacking workers' rights on many levels, would replace that. Um, I don't believe that when we leave the European Union, there will be... Uh, no regulations. I mean, the, the idea of uh, us leaving the EU and there no regulations is it's not going to be the case. I, yeah, that is still going to be there. Yeah, well, okay. no, I didn't say, I mean no regulations, we have a watered-down version of it. So, yeah. so in, in terms of uh, workers' rights and what have you, in fact, those it's often said to be the EU that has implemented these. Indeed, it's actually the UK that implemented these and took them to the EU to implement. As a result, you know, I, I think that the UK on that side of things would almost, well, very likely to keep uh, the broad uh, regulations that we currently enjoy. Amy? Yeah, I'd like to go back to basics on regulation, if you don't mind, uh, to start with, which is because I'm not entirely sure at the moment which regulations remain sovereign. Is it possible for you to give me a broad overview of, of what is at the moment not affected by EU? So, yes, it is. Um, but it's actually more effective if you go on either the European Union's uh, website or indeed many other websites, that list what's called exclusive competences, shared competences, and uh, other uh, sort of competencies that are meant to be subsidiary to uh, the member state. Last question from Matt. Yeah, I've got a question about where the rules and regulations come from. Um, in the UK, I understand it that um, uh, laws are proposed by MPs, um, Parliament debates them, and it can knock them back if, if necessary. In the EU, I understand they come from the top, and then the Parliament below um, decides whether or not to go ahead with it. Is, is, that, is that how it works? Is it sort of back to front kind of...? Yeah, it's, it's broadly correct. Um, yes, um, it's back to front in the sense that the EU Commission... Uh, proposes generally the legislation and the EU Parliament indeed generally 
have the um, revisory capacity. So they act in a way of like the House of Lords, in effect, the EU Parliament. I'm, I'm broad brush strokes, but still it's a revising chamber in, in many cases. Um, the other aspect of it is the EU Council. So member states have representation on the council. And many people will say, oh, well, Britain would have been consulted. They could have vetoed it. The problem with that is that the United Kingdom hasn't been able to veto a commission proposal in over 70 times. It's 72 to nil, I think, at current counting. We'll have to leave it there. Rory Broomfield, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Our next speaker is Fergus McReynolds, who is the EU Policy Director of the Engineering Employers Federation, the EEF. Fergus McReynolds. Thank you. So EEF, uh, the Manufacturers Organisation, represents uh, directly 6,000 members across the UK. Um, in associated organisations, we are the voice of about 20,000 manufacturing companies uh, up and down the country. Um, as an organisation, we represent some of the biggest names in manufacturing in the UK, but actually our membership is about 80% SMEs. These are companies that supply into very big manufacturers in the automotive sector, in the aerospace sector, and in engineering and technology uh, sectors. My role for the organisation is based out in Brussels. Uh, I'm permanently resident in Brussels uh, and work out of an office uh, not too far from the European institutions. Um, part of the town that we refer to as the EU bubble, um, a very big part of town. Um, in short, I'm a lobbyist. Um, that's what I do. Um, many of you may have seen House of Cards. That might give you an indication of the sort of things we do, but in reality in Europe it's very different from how it is in the US. Um, it is a much more transparent system. Uh, we are registered on the uh, voluntary transparency register for the EU. So all of our activity is measured and monitored. For us to engage at the senior levels of the EU institutions, we have to be registered on that register. So my key role for the organization is managing our relationships with the three main European institutions. So the European Commission, the European Council, and the European Parliament. My real drive is ensuring that our manufacturers can thrive, that they can grow, and that Europe creates the right environment for companies to invest. Um, in terms of how the EU legislates and how we actually get involved, the driving force behind the EU in terms of legislation is really about delivering the treaties. It's about really driving the single market in particular. It's of great interest to the UK in terms of delivering that. And a lot of the legislation is about enabling that process. And do they get it right? Not all the time. Uh, I think it's fair to say that most governing institutions, be they national or pan-national like the EU, they don't always get it right. There have been many examples where we have to go in uh, and represent the views of our members to say where things work and where they don't work. The course of the process for legislation Broadly speaking, the European Council, so that's the heads of state of the European governments, they meet um, around about six times a year and they set the real strategic direction for the organization. It is then the European Commission who are the sole actors who can provide um, legislative proposals. 
So the commission is effectively managed by um, 28 commissioners, one from each member state. Um, all commissioners are created equal, uh, perhaps except those who are slightly more equal. Uh, there are uh, there is one president of the um, European Commission, currently Jean-Claude uh, Juncker, who is uh, from Luxembourg. He has a team of then seven vice presidents, uh, and they effectively manage the matrix of work that all the commissioners drive forward. Effectively, each year, they produce a work program that's consulted with the heads of government, and that's consulted with the European Parliament, and that sets out what they will do for the course of the year. In recent years, that has been quite a significant package. However, the newest commission has recognized that perhaps that constant push of legislation uh, isn't playing well within Europe and it isn't playing well within the uh, citizens of Europe. That has changed. The latest proposal that we saw, the first proposal of this current commission uh, in the end of 2014 had 10% of the proposals from the previous year. Um, Jean-Claude Juncker sets out his political um, aspirations for the five years in which they sit in term. Uh, and he's been very clear again that Europe needs to be big on the big things and small and non-existent on the small things. Um, I think one other thing to sort of mention very quickly is, is about the focus on SMEs. The current vice president... Um, well, sorry, the first vice president of the commission, Franz Timmermans, has said on a number of occasions that SMEs are his litmus test. Traditionally, SMEs liked the European Union. There is a lot of uh, animosity towards the way it has gone. And so he feels that in four or five years' time, when they sit back and look at this, if SMEs are now engaged, then they're getting it right. Thank you. Um, have you asked your members point blank whether they're in favour of the UK remaining in the EU or leaving? Uh, we have. Uh, so we surveyed our members uh, on, on quite a regular basis on a number of different issues, and uh, obviously this one being very topical. But 61% of our members um, support remaining in the EU, uh, and that is because of the access to the market, because of the trade um, primarily, um, but also about influencing the process. And for that 61% at least, those benefits outweigh the frustrations that any business feels when new rules are imposed by governments or by Brussels. Absolutely. I mean, if, if the EU was getting it right, I wouldn't have a job. Uh, I wouldn't be in Brussels. Uh, I think it's fair to say that they don't get it right all the time. Um, we have to be there. We have to have a strong voice at that table to ensure that it's delivering for manufacturers in the UK. Right, over to the jury. Yes, Denise. I suppose, I suppose this is a for and against, really, and I, I, I don't know yet. I run a, uh, an SME. Um, one of the big issues about running an SME is the tendering process and the cost of tendering and the level of bureaucracy, which in many ways is, is, um, forms our decision about whether to go for a contract or not. And it's getting worse. Can I ask you this, Denise? Do you believe it's getting worse, this tendering process that you describe, because of something that's happening in Brussels? I think it's getting worse partly because a large organisation brings its bureaucracies, and that's inevitable. 
what I worry about and what, what you know, a lot of my colleagues also are very annoyed about is that we are practically, not to be dramatic, being put out of business because we can't, we either grow massive and we're able to afford the time and the cost of putting tenders in, or we stay the same and we are not contenders. And, and it, it, it's an impossible situation. I don't know whether it's better in or out, but certainly in at the moment is, is really not looking good for us. I, I think it's absolutely true that there is a huge bureaucracy that comes with a large organisation like the EU. The piece of optimism I have about that is that, um, as I mentioned, Franz Timmermans, who's the Dutch um, first vice president of the commission, he is a commissioner for better regulation. Um, they have recognised that this is an issue with the EU. Um, one of the examples of better regulation that he has given is talking about a, uh, a bakery. If a, if a baker is sitting at his desk, filling out forms after form after form, then that isn't a competitive market. What better regulation needs to be is about enabling them to actually bake more bread. Um, part of what has been renegotiated by the UK um, is a real focus on competitiveness. They're talking about introducing a um, burden target, burden reduction target, similar to the one which we have in the UK, and in fact, similar to targets which exist in other member states around Europe as well. There is a drive towards uh, ensuring better regulation. John. Um, might be a difficult question to answer, but What's your sense of the number of laws that we would have passed anyway, with or without the, the EU? Uh, I think I mean, we, some of the health and safety yeah, initiatives uh, and so on, uh, we would probably have passed them anyway, whether it was EU or not. So it's kind of independent it, of it, EU it, membership. I, I think it, that, that's absolutely right. I mean, certainly the EU uh, health and safety are key. So the, the, the framework of EU legislation on health and safety was largely influenced by the Health and Safety Act, which we introduced long before the European legislation. We have also ourselves um, had much more ambition uh, historically in terms of our climate change targets, and we had targets out to 2050 long before the EU did. So. I think it's fair to say that member states do regulate um, and le legislation would exist. I took from something that you said earlier that you believe there have been too many rules and regulations passed from Brussels. Successive UK governments have said it was always a priority of theirs to reduce the amount of red tape coming from Brussels. Have any of them had any success? Uh, they're, they're starting to be delivered. Uh, I think we we've, have had a programme, the Red Tape Challenge in the UK, um, over the course of the last five or six years. Uh, there is a similar um, set of recommendations, the Business Task Force, which was set up by Number 10 uh, to address where were the particular areas of focus for deregulation or, or better regulation, I should say, uh, in the EU. And of those, um, I think there's about 30 recommendations in that. Uh, and the latest report uh, suggested that about 10 of those had been taken forward or had already been taken forward. So the message is clear. Uh, the message is not just from the UK. There are a lot of member states who, who have the same feeling. 
that there really needs to be action. And I feel that the current institutions and the current makeup uh, has got the message. Fergus McReynolds, thank you very much indeed. So, okay, you've heard some very different views there about the way that the uh, EU's rules and regulations can affect British businesses and the environment. Let's get a feel of what you make of it all. Who took what away from all that? Amy. <laughs> well, um, it's a very large topic, isn't it? And um, it was useful, however, to have um, someone, from, someone who was a specialist in one particular aspect which was the environment, so to understand how that worked. But I'm not sure it answers a lot of my questions about generally what would be better in or out with the rules of regulation. She had a very very clear line, didn't she? she? I mean, she answered my question. Is the EU good for the British environment? Yes. Yes. Do you buy that? On the environment, yes. Who else bought that? Yeah, John? Absolutely, yes. Very clear that EU is greener than UK. Anybody disagree with Oh, Matt? Yeah, I, I didn't get that view. Um, I, I, I think the UK's got a very strong green lobby. We've got um, the Green Party. Um, and I think as a nation, we've, we have become greener. I don't see why... I, I didn't really see the point of, of the EU legislation other than being some sort of you know, minimum expectation. But I think we exceed it anyway. Okay, everybody wants to talk. Uh, Simon. Well, the, the point I took away from it was actually having uh, a separate body like the EU, which was almost impartial in a way on a subject like the environment, was uh, vital and much more important than having your own national government, which be, would be lobbied every five years you have an election, and then the environmental laws change with the government. And I think it's one of those things that, that needs to not change. So I did buy her argument. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, likewise. I just think that climate change, environment, green issues aren't British only phenomena. And to, to say we have a great climate change policy is kind of like patting ourselves on the back whilst the rest of the world suffers. So being part of the European Union and engaging with a block around climate change, it'd be great if we could create a whole climate uh, environmental block across the whole world because climate change is a global issue. It's not a British specific issue. So. I completely bought the environmental side of things. So. Denise, I was really interested in what you were saying about running a small company and the, the, the weight of the bureaucracy that is on your shoulders. Uh, having listened to these speakers on the subjects of rules and regulations, do you feel happier, less happy, clearer, less clear? I, I would like to feel happier. I liked his words about it's becoming less bureaucratic. I know the time scales that these big organizations work in, so that doesn't give me major optimism. I think it will come, but I think it's not going to come very fast. It doesn't sound to me as if you regard the EU very much as your friend, at least in that context. Uh, at the moment, running a small company, no, I don't. Not right now. Yeah, Max. I did find that... Um the last speaker, Fergus, his overall takeaway message seemed to be that although the EU often gets things wrong, and he, his work as a lobbyist was predicated on the idea that there are things that need fixing, he still felt, and most of his members, in contrast to Denise's opinion, most SMEs, he... 61%, I think he said. I think that was the figure. 61%. Thought it was of a benefit. And I, I found that argument more plausible than Rory from Better Off Out, who basically 
seemed well very reluctant to say there was anything good at all about anything the EU does. Really, I mean, we didn't press him exactly on if he would name anything he liked, but there was, it was a very unnuanced view. And I thought that Fergus's view reflected the fact that it's complicated and there's a lot wrong with it, but on balance, there's also a lot to like. So it is, it's complicated. One of the biggest complaints that people have about the EU is that there's too much red tape. Too many rules and regulations come from Brussels. It makes it impossible to run a business, to do anything useful. Now, based on the three speakers you've heard, I mean, is that a view that you're now more likely to take, less likely to take, Sharma? I thought what it actually demonstrated was two conspiracy theories. One side saw the uh, big behemoth of Brussels as this kind of anonymous bogeyman, and the other side saw consecutive British governments as pits of evil uh, that will overturn everything good ever done. Which side you on? I am I am possibly more confused now because I had already thought this argument was binary, but it's binary to the point where it is only zero and one, and there is absolutely nothing around the sides. Yes, yeah, Simon, Simon. Surely we can give, we can judge the EU in the way that we judge our own governments and think that something they do are good, something they do are bad, and that you can have a policy and then you can change the policy. So the EU isn't, uh, it's not an end point, it's an ongoing, evolving. Entity. How confident are you that UK can change EU policy? Um, well, I think I'm more positive about remaining part of something and changing changing it from within than and I think it would be almost impossible to do it. We'd just be moaning on the outside, basically. If people think that if we leave EU, all that bureaucracy would go away. There's much more red tape in Europe, in Greece and Italy and all those countries. It's unbelievable. So I, I don't, yeah, so I don't think you can even compare it, really. Simon? I do think it's partly a matter of perception as well. So you might be asked to do something by, I don't know, the UK government when you have to get your passport issued. And we might moan about that going to the post office and filling out the forms or whatever. If that suddenly became something that the EU did, I just feel that you'd do exactly the same thing but moan about it more because the EU were asking you to do it than your own national government. I think that, so. there is an element of perception involved. OK, we're going to end it there. There are three more discussions available on our website. They are the ones focusing on the economy, on immigration, and on identity and sovereignty. So if you haven't yet heard them, just go to our website, eutheJury.uk. I'm Robin Lustig. Thank you for listening.